Bonnie Glazer, director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we're discussing China's interests and policies in Africa and its evolving relations with countries on the African continent. China has a long history of interaction with Africa, but it's really been in the past two decades that it's become a major player. Chinese annual foreign aid on the continent nearly quadrupled between 2003 and 2017. And China has been Africa's top trading partner for over a decade, surpassing the United States in 2009. Beijing has provided loans and invested heavily in infrastructure projects in Africa, including airports, roads, and railways. It has also strengthened security ties with several African nations. The impact of China's growing involvement in Africa, like elsewhere in the world, is mixed. African countries welcome Chinese cash for infrastructure, but not all the projects have contributed to sustainable economic development. To discuss China's interests in Africa and assess its efforts to achieve them, I'm joined by Dr. Joshua Eisenman. Dr. Eisenman is an associate professor in the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame and senior fellow for China Studies at the American Foreign Policy Council. And he's currently working with Ambassador David Shin on their second co-authored book on China-Africa relations, which examines the political and security aspects of China's engagement on the continent. Thanks for joining us today, Josh. Great to be here, Bonnie. Thanks for having me back. So let's start by talking about China's broad strategic, geostrategic goals in Africa. What do you see as their priorities? Um, How would you rack and stack their various interests, uh, commercial, importing commodities from Africa, their diplomatic, military goals? How do you see these objectives? Well, you know, that's a great question to start out with. And why it's great for me is because uh, in 2015, December, Xi Jinping uh, laid them out pretty clearly. He laid out in his speech in Johannesburg what he called the five major pillars of the relationship. And those are political mutual trust, solidarity and coordination in international affairs, economic cooperation, sustained growth of China-Africa friendship from generation to generation, and mutual assistance in security. And so what's really interesting, just from your introduction and what we all tend to see on China-Africa, is that most of those are political and security objectives. But yet so much of what we read about China-Africa relations is dominated by the economic relationship, which has grown amazingly, especially since the creation of the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation in 2000. But yet, since 2014, we've yet to return to those levels of trade. And we do see, I wouldn't say stagnation, but we see a kind of leveling out or a plateauing in terms of China's debt finance on the continent. So at the same time, we're seeing uh, Xi Jinping underscoring the political issues and the security issues. So that's why Ambassador Shin and I have turned to these issues, which we think have gotten short shrift so far, but are becoming increasingly important, especially as China has become more assertive in its relations around the world. So the Chinese often talk about their core interests, and this, of course, includes areas like Tibet, Xinjiang, Taiwan. We could also throw in Hong Kong in that mix, and sometimes even extending to areas like the South China Sea. In its relations with African countries, has China been successful in soliciting the support of these countries for these core interests? You know, on that issue, I think it's an unequivocal yes. 
And I have to start off by saying that one of the reasons is that the issues you mentioned, of which I would all agree, and I would also add Xinjiang uh, issues as well, they're not key issues of concern for Africans, generally speaking. Tibet is about as far as you can get from the concerns of most Africans and culturally speaking, linguistically. So um, certainly Buddhism is dominant there, not so much in Africa. So there's little connection that Africans have with these. They don't resonate. And so they're easy because they matter a lot for China and they matter very little for Africa. So um, they're Chinese core interests and they're African bottom tier interests. That being said, China has done an admirable job at getting at least silence on all of these issues and oftentimes getting African nations by the dozen to sign on to Chinese views on them. We've seen this in terms of the South China Sea, where countries like Rwanda said things which were very much affirming of China's stance. Um, And we saw this uh, most recently, where dozens of African countries signed on to China's view of the uh, camps in Xinjiang, basically saying that this was uh, within Chinese domestic affairs to treat its Muslim populations as it liked. And so what we've seen over the last 10 years um, has essentially been no African country crossing China on these issues, and most of them signing on. And if they're not signing on, then they will just remain silent. Now, there have been a couple of incidences with regard to Tibetans visiting South Africa, and I think an incident in Botswana as well. But these are really blips on the radar screen. We can count them on one hand. But what we what we see time and time again is African countries are more than happy to add uh, elements of this to statements bilaterally or sometimes even multilaterally. So China's core interests have been well advanced by Africa. And in many ways, this can date back to China's gaining its seat on the UN, which uh, received quite a lot of African countries' support. Now, one interesting evolution on this, however, is while China uses claims of sovereignty, non-interference, and then the reciprocity thereof in order to achieve African support, we are seeing an evolution of the non-interference principle in Africa. And perhaps the clearest indication is the base, uh, the military base established in Djibouti, which, um, as you know well, Bonnie, had long been China's principled view that it would not establish such bases. So um, this is one evolution of that principle, but we're seeing it in a variety of other areas as well. And in our research, Ambassador Shin and I met with numerous Chinese scholars who were discussing Um, how non-interference can be adapted to China's increasing interests on the continent in terms of protecting its people and its economic investments. And so I think this is something for your listeners to keep an eye on. The non-interference principle goes back to the 1950s in terms of Chinese foreign policy. Really, the evolution in this principle may lead at some point to much more substantive changes in Chinese foreign policy on the ground. So when we look at the tools that China is using to advance its political and security interests in Africa, what do you think are the tools that are working most effectively? Are there new things that the Chinese are using? And what's the sort of response then from Africa to these efforts by China to push its own interests? In terms of the tools it uses on the political front, I would say that the number one tool it's been using since 2000 is FOCAC, the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation. This allows China to essentially dominate the agenda. And agenda-setting power is a very important component 
of the exercising of political power. And FOCAC, which has been created by Jiang Zemin in 2000 with African support, but primarily it was a Chinese idea from what I can tell, has become the primary venue for interaction. And it rotates every three years from an African capital and then back to China, which means every other year China is the host. And then African countries, all 54 of them, uh, may never host one. So this gives China a great advantage. China has also been engaged increasingly with African regional institutions. And the African Union is the primary example where China literally built the headquarters of the African Union, then was accused of bugging the African Union. And in our in our meetings there, nobody would deem to talk about it. But it seems like that actually did happen at some level. Um, meanwhile, China is now building or has completed the ECOWAS headquarters for the West African subregional group and has uh, relations with all subregional groups at one level or another. Um, and so it's got multilateral uh, engagements uh, with Africans, both within their institutions that they've created, and it's been generous to those institutions as well. And then we've seen the P2P, what they call party-to-party relations, have expanded rapidly, just as the trade has seemed to level off. Under Xi Jinping, we've seen more hosting of more African delegations each and every year. Um, and this uh, is accompanied often with cadre training. And that training uh, has a lot to do with what Africans are looking for. But it also, of course, includes elements of core interests and other things that China wishes to convey to the African side. Um, we're seeing more and more of this take place on the multilateral level as well. And I would say the kind of key element of this was the creation of a new party school, the Julius Nereri Party School, which was uh, kicked off by the International Department of the Communist Party's chief, Mr. Song Tao, who uh, christened it himself. And so uh, we see the, you know, of course, this institution literally built by Chinese uh, contractors uh, with Chinese funds in the library, including, I'm sure, plenty of Xi Jinping's collected works. So we can see in a variety of different engagements across the political spectrum, bilaterally, multilaterally, with institutions China has created, as well as institutions that were pre-existing. So the political relationship, I would say, is as robust, perhaps, as it's ever been. And I can go on to talk about security interests and security diplomacy, Navy port calls, military arms sales. All of these things are happening at increasing levels day by day. So we're seeing a real expansion of the political and security relationship. And, uh, of course, we also see telecom networks, content sharing, educational training. Honestly, this question is about as deep as they get because the relationship has become so multifaceted over the years. China's invested in a lot of ports in Africa. And of course, you mentioned Djibouti being their first and only real dedicated military base in the world. Do you expect to see other Chinese military bases in Africa? So I would say the answer is yes. We should probably expect to see more Chinese military engagement on the continent. Whether or not that includes another military base or not, I think we don't know yet. In the aftermath of the China-Africa Defense Security Cooperation Forum, there was discussion on the Chinese state-run media about a base in West Africa. Ambassador Shin and I in in Namibia heard rumors of this in Walvis Bay. But it's difficult to confirm, um, and I don't know that there are any immediate plans, uh, especially because there has been some pushback uh, internationally for the idea of China expanding militarily uh, in a very rapid way. So it seems to me that uh, we're going to have to have a wait-and-see approach on that one. So small and medium-sized countries around the world are trying to use their agency to 
manage their relationships with China with, you know, varying success. So if you look at these African countries, all of which, of course, are economically, their power pales in comparison to China. How do you see them trying to exercise their agency in their relations with China? And what more could they do? And is there any coordination between them in order to try to protect shared interests? Or are they all just out for themselves? Well, this is a great question. And it's one that I'm very much interested in these days. I think to understand why it's so hard for African countries to exercise agency in their relationship with China, it's important to understand that this agency or lack thereof takes place on multi-tiered, which is the asymmetry they face is not merely with regard to comprehensive national strength. That is the size of the military, the size of the economy, the size of the population. Um, It goes beyond that. It goes to two other levels. I would say it goes to the state level. And what I mean by the state level is state capacity, state structure, state policy coordination, and it goes to the human and working level. And in that, I mean officials training and preparation and knowledge of the issues that they're dealing with. And we can imagine a situation, actually, we don't have to imagine, we have situations like Israel and Singapore, where at the state level and the working level, they are superior to a lot of countries which are larger than them with regard to comprehensive national strength. So it is possible for a small state to have agency in its relations with larger states. Where African countries seem to have a problem is that on all three levels, they face what I call a comprehensive asymmetry. And this comprehensive asymmetry is not only multi-tiered, but it's compounded by the opacity of the Chinese state, which means that Israel, for instance, has great state capacity Um, It has great capacity on the working level, and the American system is transparent, so Israel can really influence uh, U.S. policy towards Israel. But how do you influence the Chinese state? In many ways, that's a question that even American diplomats and, and larger, more capable states have yet to crack. So these African states uh, often end up with what we heard called a begging bowl approach because they have very little ability to both find out how to influence the Chinese state and they have very little agency on any of these three levels. And we see this manifest in terms of the imbalances and flows of trade, capital, aid, resources available to policymakers which in turn constrain the African side's knowledge and policy options. And, and so if, if I had to say what could the African side do, what would be the thing that would be most within their power? It's certainly not on the international level. They, they can't change that. And on the state level, that would, be, that would take time. You'd have to build a very capable bureaucracy or set of bureaucracies and, and government systems. So the most available for them would be the working level. And we did see this in some places where um, the African state brought in an A-team to negotiate with China, um, a set of ringers. In one country, um, the new ambassador had never served in government, was brought in from a U.S. multinational because he'd run part of their negotiating division. And so if an African country really wants to gain agency on the quick, what it needs to do is make sure that the people who are engaging with China are on the same page with each other, are extremely well-educated, who speak Chinese, and who are able to engage China to defend the interests of their nation um, and not capture rents through their engagements, as we've seen in other countries. Other than that, around the continent, we saw a variety of 
techniques that I would consider weapons of the weak. Um, they fall short of direct confrontation, but are more or less efforts to opportunistically take advantage of anti-Chinese sentiment uh, to form political coalitions. We saw us versus them narratives that were developing, including anti-Chinese rhetoric and name-calling, the desire to bring in other countries like the U.S., Japan, Russia, and India to expand relations and counterbalance China's growing interest. But what we certainly did not hear is any desire to either pull out from a relationship with China or to confront China directly or to put together a counterbalancing coalition that could actually gain international agency vis-a-vis China in the international space. That we did not see. So Africa is obviously pretty low on the U.S. list of strategic priorities. But of course, the U.S. does have uh, some strategic interests in Africa. From your perspective, does increased Chinese engagement on the continent undermine U.S. interests? And is it right to frame this as a zero-sum competition? Well, I think that your first statement is the essential one, which is that Africa is the bottom of the priority list. I know that the former National Security Advisor Bolton put out an Africa strategy But that fell quite flat and I don't think has been implemented in any real way. So I I just don't think that the United States pays enough attention to Africa that China's Africa strategy is that troublesome, right? It's not where we have chosen to prioritize our interests. And therefore, I think that those people who would like to categorize this as a zero-sum game on the continent, I don't see this as a new great game or rising to that level. Um, And part of that is the globalization of trade phenomenon, right? China's trade with Africa to this point has been dominated by raw materials. Those raw materials then go into the products that we buy, the Chinese buy, and the Africans buy. So it's not a um, certainly an economic zero-sum game, since U.S. firms are not really present on the continent in any great number to, to compete with China, certainly not in the infrastructure space. So, no, I don't see it as zero-sum, and I don't think it's necessarily a helpful way to think of China-Africa relations is necessarily in juxtaposition to U.S. interests directly. That being said, I do think that what China is engaged in in the developing world more broadly is an effort to constrain U.S. unilateral freedom of action, a Gulliver strategy that they call democratization of international relations or multipolarity, uh, if you want to look at its relations with the BRICS and other larger countries. And I do believe that that broader strategy is U.S.-focused and intended to bring about norms of action in the international space that do constrain the U.S. from engaging in unilateral, particularly military action. So I, I wouldn't say that their strategy is not relevant to the U.S., but it is not directly relevant. It is a kind of a relevant in as much as the U.S. would be constrained by democratization of international relations. And under the Trump administration, it has shown that such norms are not as relevant to them. So if the strategy is to kind of change the way in which the world sees U.S. unilateralism, that only matters if the U.S. cares about how the world thinks about its unilateralism. And I think that's a question right now that uh, the next election is going to have a lot of say in. Xi Jinping has said publicly several times that China's um, development path 
is an option for the developing world. How much attraction does China's development model have uh, for African countries? Are there countries that are really looking to model their own development path on what China has achieved in the way that it's done so, even if it's selectively adopting some of the things that China has done, not necessarily, of course, adopting the Chinese Communist Party, but some of the practices that China has used to develop into a great economic power that increasingly has political powers as well as military capabilities. Well, I think that this has changed and evolved over time, whereas before Xi Jinping took over, I would not have said that China was marketing a particular development model. But the idea that China has something to teach Africa, um, I think the Zhongguo Fang'an idea has been advanced and continues to be. And I know that the uh, Xi Jinping's books are increasingly finding their way into the hands of African leaders. And there are some images you can find online of this. So, I mean, there's definitely a desire to advance, you know, the Chinese uh, way. I find it sometimes difficult to know exactly what that is. But let's put it this way and step back and look at more broadly. Everyone wants to get rich. Everyone wants development. When people thought in the developing world that that meant democracy, then people signed on to democracy. When people thought it meant you know, the Chinese system, then they'll sign on to that. But if the Chinese model, so to speak, does not deliver over the next decade, and there's a lot of reasons to believe that stagnation is in their future, demographics, I would say, being the key among them, then the Chinese model is going to fall out of favor as quickly as other models. Because at the end of the day, uh, people are pretty opportunistic when it comes to the political models they have. They want to serve their interests. You know, part of the problem in political science is we keep conflating uh, what people want economically with what we say they want politically. This is called modernization theory. It didn't work very well for China, and I I dare say it hasn't worked much around the world. But China shouldn't fall into the same trap and think of kind of an autocratic modernization theory where somehow their system brings about just great outcomes and therefore everyone's going to want it forever. It's very much contingent on how successful China is, and China's been very successful. But I think there's reason to believe it won't necessarily be in the future. And then that's going to lead to a very difficult question for those who are promoting the China path of whether or not there's much left to promote if the system doesn't continue to deliver at home. Looking out over the next uh, decade or so, what do you think are the variables that will determine whether China's relations with Africa become closer or whether they become more contentious? Well, I think that one of the key variables is certainly going to be how China has invested in pipelines around its periphery to secure itself in terms of its energy supplies. We've seen a reduction or a a movement towards energy supplies from closer partners like Russia and so I and the Middle East, which is, you know, can go through Myanmar's pipeline. So I wonder whether or not the China Africa energy relationship is going to continue. There's also efforts that China's making on fracking. And it was fracking that caused the US Africa economic relationship to essentially plunge downward because we didn't import African oil anymore. And so if China uses other foreign supplies 
And if China is able to institute fracking to the level the U.S. has, I wonder if the petroleum relationship will be able to be sustained. And, and then that will affect relations with countries like Angola and Sudan um, and others uh, who are exporters. Uh, similarly, China's domestic economic strength was the driver of its imports of minerals and raw materials. If China's economy stagnates, then it's just going to be importing less. And that means there's less economic relations. What would be interesting to watch then would be, will the political and security relations continue to expand as they have over the last three or four years amid a consistent and rapid decline in the economic relationship? Now, I'm not predicting a rapid decline in the economic relationship. I, I guess the be- I would think of it more as plateaued. I don't see much room for rapid growth in China-Africa trade I would say, over the next decade. It will grow, but it just won't grow at the same rates that it's grown in the past. In terms of security, I think that that's just going to continue to grow, and I don't see any reason for it not to. Those linkages uh, really provide a strong backbone, even politically, where you'll have the military often being the most important political actor in the country. So I see the PLA's relations, the political uh, diplomacy, military diplomacy enhanced, and I see enhancing political party-to-party relations. You know, I don't see anything knocking that off course, because that is a decision that can be taken unilaterally in Beijing if they wish to expand these. And it seems that they've decided that they're going to. Those are the things that I would say to watch going forward. We've been talking with Dr. Joshua Eisenman, who's an associate professor in the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame and senior fellow for China Studies at the American Foreign Policy Council. Thanks so much for joining us today, Josh. That was my pleasure, Bonnie. Thank you for having me.